It has stood the test of time. God's book, the Bible, still relevant in today's complex world. It is written, sharing messages of hope around the world. You know, I'm not a big fan of cliffhangers, and I'm quite sorry that I left you in suspense during our last show. But today we return right to where we left off in Daniel chapter 8 with the little horn power and his activities. Daniel 8, 13 and 14 is exactly where we left off. Now, if you missed any of the previous shows, you can go to our website, www.itiswrittencanada.ca to see any of the previous shows. But we left off with Daniel chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, what is this all about? What does it mean? Now, in order to understand all of this, we need to ask several questions. What is the 2,300 days all about? What does it pertain to? Where is this sanctuary? Why does it need to be cleansed? How did the little horn attempt to cast down the place of his sanctuary. So let's begin by trying to understand these 2,300 days. Now, right at the outset, we need to hearken back to our study of the work of astronomer-philosopher De Chazot and his work that indicates that these days, the 2,300 days, are actually years. Now, there are several reasons beyond his reasoning that also lead to this conclusion. First of all, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 in the original language literally reads unto 2300 evenings and mornings. Now, that's a bit of an odd way to express a time period if speaking in a literal sense. Now, second, we need to understand the context in which this time period is expressed. Now, you'll remember it comes in the speaking of the beasts of a ram and a goat, along with this little horn power. And so, therefore, this whole chapter is highly symbolic. So, it would seem to make sense that Daniel would express this time period in symbolic terms, just as the rest of the vision is. Now, third, in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 17, Gabriel explained that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, if this time period simply referred to literal days, it would mean that the time of the end is only about six years after Daniel had received the vision. Now, that just doesn't seem to make much sense. And fourth, in Daniel 8, 26, Daniel is told, 
seal up the vision, for it refers to many days. Now, in several instances in the book of Daniel, that word days can actually mean centuries. So, if Daniel wanted to communicate this in plain language, he would have said something like, the sanctuary will be cleansed in just over six years. But that's not what he said. So with all of that and the reality that the word days, when referring to the 2300 days in the book of Daniel, often can mean years, we must apply the day for a year principle of day chasso. And so all of this means that God is telling Daniel that in 2300 years, the sanctuary will be cleansed. So where is this sanctuary that is to be cleansed? Now, to help us understand where this sanctuary is, we need to understand a bit more about what time period this prophecy covers. Now, after Daniel 8, 14, the angel Gabriel interprets the vision. However, this 2300-year prophecy, he does not give much understanding or, most importantly, a starting date to Daniel. And so Daniel is left, as verse 27 points out, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick four days. Afterward, I arose, went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Daniel was sick because he did not understand now, I want this chapter of Daniel to be so clear to you that you have complete understanding. So to help us understand this 2300-year prophecy, we need to understand some of the technicalities of the word vision in the original language of the text of Daniel 8. So now I want you to focus with me. It, this is not confusing. It may sound confusing, but it's not confusing. Several times in the book of Daniel, you have this word vision appear. Now, most importantly, in our study today, it occurs several times in Daniel chapter 8. Now, the word vision actually has two different Hebrew root words. One of them is hason, and the other one is the Hebrew word mahre. Both of the words mean vision. Now, that first word for vision, chason, encompasses all of what was revealed to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. From the ram, the goat, the four horns, the little horn, his activities, the daily, and the 2300 days. So, chason refers to the entirety of the vision. And so, as an example of that, in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 15, Daniel was seeking the meaning for the entire vision, hason, since an explanation of it in its entirety had not yet been given. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 17 and verse 26, it says the entire vision, the hason, is for the time of the end. But then there's this second word in Daniel 8, and that word is mahre. Now, it is this word that is directly linked to the 2300-day prophecy. In Daniel 8, 26, the Bible says, and the vision, mahre, of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Now, what is the vision of the evening and mornings? Well, 
you were listening earlier, that's right, the vision of Daniel 8, 14, 2300 days or 2300 evenings and mornings. Now, Daniel 8, 27 also has an appearance of the word marae. The Bible says, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business, and I was astonished by the vision, the word marae, but no one understood it. Would God leave Daniel with no explanation? No, God would give him understanding. However, that understanding wouldn't come until 13 years later when Daniel was praying. That prayer is recorded in Daniel 9. And I want to be clear, we turn the page from Daniel 8 to Daniel 9, but the span between those two chapters is 13 years. So Daniel was praying about the promised deliverance of his people after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Now, we don't have time to read the entirety of that prayer, so I would encourage you to go and, and read it today. But in Daniel 9, 21, this is what it says. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who had seen in the vision at the beginning, reached me. So Daniel sees the same angel he encountered in Daniel 8. Now, in Daniel 9, 23, Gabriel speaks to Daniel and says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, what vision did he need help understanding? The vision of the 2300 years. And this word here for vision is that Hebrew word, mahre, which refers directly to the 2300-year prophecy. This means, then, that what follows verse 23 is to provide Daniel with an answer to the lingering questions he had about the 2300-year prophecy. So let's read the amazing words that follow Daniel 9.23 in verses 24 and 25. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Daniel first mentions that this 70 week period is determined for Daniel's people. Now, who are Daniel's people? Well, of course, Daniel's people are the Jews. And it also applies to their holy city, Jerusalem. And just as in the 2300 days, 70 weeks is an unusual way to express a time period, which means that these 70 weeks actually refer to years. So if we multiply 70 times seven days in a week, we arrive at 490 days, 
and then if we apply the day for a year principle, we arrive at 490 years. Now, even more critical is the reality that in the original Hebrew, this actually says 70 weeks of years. Now, the prophecy stated that these 490 years are determined for Daniel's people and for Jerusalem. The Hebrew word for determined actually literally means to be cut off. So the logical question is, what is the 70-week prophecy, the 490-year prophecy cut off from? Well, in light of Gabriel's instructions that Daniel should consider the matter and understand the vision, mare, so Gabriel was referring to the 2300 days, it would be logical to conclude that this 70-week or 490-year period would be cut off from the 2300-year period. And so, if this prophecy gives us a starting point, it will share the starting point for the 2300-year prophecy as well. In Daniel 9.25, the angel tells Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, we'll be studying Daniel 9 in detail next week. But for the meantime, here's what we need to understand. At the time this vision was given, Jerusalem and the temple were still in ruins from the destruction of Nebuchadnezzar. But now heaven announces that a command will be issued to rebuild and restore. And from that date, a definite number of years will reach to the long look for Messiah. Now, when we look to history, there are three decrees that deal with the repatriation of the Jews. All of them are recorded in the book of Ezra. The first is in the first year of Cyrus, about 537 B.C., and that's found in Ezra 1, 1 to 4. The second happens during the reign of Darius I in about 520 B.C., and that's recorded in Ezra 6, 1 to 12. But the third happens in the seventh year of Artaxerxes in 457 B.C., and that's recorded in Ezra 6, 14, and in a majority of Ezra 7. So here's our question, which one is it? Interestingly enough, in the decrees of Cyrus and Darius, neither one of them made any genuine provision for the restoration of the civil state as a complete unit. But a restoration of both the religious and civil government was promised in the prophecy of Daniel 9. The decree of the seventh year of Artaxerxes, however, was the first to give the Jewish state full autonomy subject to Persian overlordship. So here's the deal. History reveals that in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, 457 BC, this would be the starting date. And it provides us the date when the 2300-year prophecy begins and the 490-year prophecy begins. But returning to the 2300-year prophecy, if we add 2300 years to 457 BC, we arrive at 1844. Now remember, there is no year zero, so we need to skip the zero, and we arrive at 1844. Now remember, according to Daniel 8.14, this marked the year when the sanctuary 
would be cleansed. But where is this sanctuary? Friends, in 1844, the earthly sanctuary no longer existed. It had been destroyed. The Bible predicted in many places that the earthly sanctuary wouldn't be cleansed, but rather destroyed. The 70-week prophecy of Daniel 9 states that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And again, in Daniel 9:27, it states, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. And then in Matthew 24, 2, Jesus himself predicted that the temple would be destroyed. And in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus cited the abomination of desolation of Daniel 9, 27 as the power that destroyed the temple in AD 70. Now, moreover, the book of Hebrews anticipated the destruction of the earthly temple in 70 AD. And as a result, it directed its readers to the reality of the heavenly temple where Jesus himself ministers. And you can read about this in Hebrews 8, 1 to 5. Now, if it couldn't be the earthly sanctuary, it must be the heavenly sanctuary. And that's what needed cleansing. And this cleansing apparently began in 1844. How could the sanctuary in heaven, of all places, need cleansing? Now, to help us understand this, we need to understand the function and the significance of the heavenly sanctuary. The sanctuary functions a lot like a pair of eyeglasses. You know, eyeglasses, of course, help a person who's wearing them to more accurately determine what they are viewing. A correct understanding of the heavenly sanctuary helps us to interpret the great doctrines and themes of the Bible. And so at this point, I would like us to look at three areas the heavenly sanctuary helps us to understand that which the little horn has greatly distorted. Those three things are spirituality, salvation, and worship. So let's talk about spirituality. In Daniel 8, verses 11 to 13, the little horn cast down the place of God's sanctuary. It took away the daily and cast the truth to the ground. Now, in last week's show, we mentioned that the little horn of Daniel 8 grew out of one of the four horns that came up in the place of Alexander the Great. The Western Greeks of Italy make up that little horn that eventually grew into Papal Rome. Now, a great deal of Christianity has been negatively affected by the influence of Western Greek philosophers, such as Parmenides, Pythagoras, whose ideas were systematized through Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. According to their principles, ultimate reality is timeless. Now, don't be confused. This is a technical philosophical term that simply means that ultimate reality does not consist of time or space because they don't exist. Now, don't be confused. Here's what happened. Theologians in the early and medieval church began to assume this definition of ultimate reality and applied it to God and to heaven. And so if that just kind of doesn't make sense, here's the important result. Since the sanctuary is a spatial and a temporal structure, a real structure, 
it is simply thought of in this new theology as a spaceless reality, which means the sanctuary does not provide us with any useful information at all about spirituality, salvation, or worship. But my dear friends, by neglecting the central role of the heavenly sanctuary, the early and medieval church began to develop a theory of spirituality derived from Aristotle in which during the Eucharist, the substance of the bread and wine is transformed literally into the substance of the divine and human Son of God. And as a result, spirituality, the real presence of God, literally becomes linked with the bread and wine instead of with the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, who's in the literal heavenly sanctuary. But then this Greek philosophical concept was also linked with salvation. You see, a person had no hope of salvation without partaking of the real presence within the Eucharist. One of the early church fathers referred to the Eucharist as the medicine of immortality. And this principle has pervaded many Protestant denominations. In addition to all of that, many Christians today experience what they believe is the real presence by combining the Eucharist with many variations and styles of music in the corporate worship service. And so in this way, they have come to believe that music is synonymous with the real presence of God in much the same way the real presence was synonymous with the Eucharist. However, in Exodus 25, 8, God said these words, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. You see, this means that God's presence is understood in the context of the sanctuary and that he is able to dwell in a spatial temporal structure, in a real structure. John 1, verse 14, the apostle states this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not only did God dwell with his people in the sanctuary of old, but John tells us he actually became flesh, which means that he has taken upon himself a reality he did not previously possess. And not only that, But because he carried his human nature into the heavenly sanctuary and he will retain it there forever, he is able to sympathize with us as human beings. All of this is impossible according to the principles and methods of Greek philosophy that came in through the little horn. You see, according to Aristotle, God is the unmoved mover who cannot act in any historical sequence of time. It is this understanding of the real presence from Greek philosophy that is completely incompatible with Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the incarnation and in the spatial temporal structure of the heavenly sanctuary. You see, the heavenly sanctuary is the place where Christ, his real presence, abides. He's alive. And he invites us to come before him and enter into relationship with him. And that personal encounter leads us into the true spirituality of his abiding presence, 
when the principles of the law of God as a part of the new covenant experience are written on our hearts and our minds. And here is the key. Spirituality is the reality that Christ is in heaven and not in some bread and wine or in some music, as the little horn suggests. He is real. And Christ wants us to live and live so he can live in us, having the Holy Spirit implant in us his laws into our hearts, into our minds, instead of those who are led by the philosophies of the little horn who teach that Christ must be in us as an essential or substantial way, similarly to how he is in the Eucharist and how he is in music. You see, my friends, the little horn attacked the heavenly sanctuary first by relegating the heavenly sanctuary to an insignificant relic that has no meaning by denying the Bible and accepting Greek philosophy. Second, instead of directing people to come to Christ for forgiveness and grace in the heavenly sanctuary, the mass and the earthly priestly system have eclipsed Christ's role in those areas. And third, through a system of corporate worship and spirituality that assumes the real presence is in music and not in heaven, And so the heavenly sanctuary needed to be cleansed from the attacks of the little horn. My dear friends, Jesus is real. He dwells in the sanctuary and he invites you to come to him. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, this is what the Bible promises. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a powerful promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that Jesus is real, in a real sanctuary, and wants to minister to us in a very real way. Thank you so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, I hope you enjoyed the program today. I want to offer you the book, The Great Hope. The Great Hope is going to be a book that talks about Jesus in the real sanctuary who wants to have a real relationship with you. It'll also go over some of these prophecies. If you'd like to receive today's offer, here's the information that you need. To request today's offer, just log on to www.itiswrittencanada.ca. That's www.itiswrittencanada.ca and select the TV program tab. For Canadian viewers, the offer will be sent free and postage paid. For viewers outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you prefer, you may call toll-free at 1-888-CALL-IIW. That's 1-888-CALL-IIW. Call anytime. Lines are open 24 hours daily. That's 1-888-CALL-IIW. 
Or if you wish, you may write to us at It Is Written, Box 2010, Oshawa, Ontario, L1H7B4. My dear friends, Jesus is in the real sanctuary, ministering on your behalf. And he invites you to come boldly to him. And there you can meet grace and mercy. I hope you enjoyed today's program. I invite you to join us again next week. Until then, remember, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.